Praise God, it's good to be together. Somebody was messing with my pulpit. (laughs) But I'll be gracious and share. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for visiting us, your people. Thank you for being eager to extend to us the blood of Christ. Thank you for your gracious character and how you deal with us as sinners, how mercy upon mercy is poured out on us eternally, so to produce in us holy life of obedience and fervor towards mission and chasing after you. And so, God, I pray that through the preaching of your word, that you would hear and see this great need of us as sinners in need of grace and that you by your Holy Spirit will be poured out on your people so to fan a flame. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Christ and I pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, uh, whether you're, you're new to our church or have been coming for a while, uh, maybe one of the things that you have noticed uh, each week as we gather above all else is that it is our absolute highest intention and priority to offer, extend, and remind you of the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ week after week. We believe that the only way to knowing God and truly living for him is by grace. This grace is free, it's unmerited. God's grace is given to people who don't come before him and present to them good deeds, religiosity, works, or payment. The gospel that we believe in here is that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone, which thus results in God's glory alone. And so, in light of that, As a flowing fruit, one of the things that we oppose here most at our church is this thought or practice of legalism. If you're unfamiliar with legalism, legalism is when religious rules and laws are sought after in religious institutions and kept by people as a means by which they can measure their worth and their status before God. According to the Bible, this is not only an untrue gospel, but the results of these practices and demands leaves no hope for sinners. Legalism produces no real inward change, and most of all, the most dangerous thing about legalism is that it has man at the center of salvation. Thus, this is why grace reigns supreme. It's really, really good news. I was in the sauna the other day, at LA Fitness, you know me, I get rowdy at, the sa- in, at LA Fitness. Anyways, I was in the sauna with four guys. One of those guys had his cell phone on, playing music. And um, the music that he was playing was probably the most sexually vulgar and violent um, lyrics I've ever heard in my life. I was with those four guys, listening to the words. All those other guys who were with us in the sauna there were laughing, enjoying it, nodding, talking about the lyrics, and personally, I was pretty grieved. I was praying to myself, and I said, God, would you please give me a chance to speak? And so um, eventually, the guy who had the cell phone and the music coming out of the cell phone decided to leave. He was done with the sauna, so he brought the the song finished, and he brought the, um, the phone out with him, and there I was left with the three other guys. 
And uh, right before that one guy left, he, he turned back to the guys in the sun and he said to them, all right, fellas, God bless. And uh, all, all the other guys said, all right, man, God bless. And, um, and I thought to myself, wow, what an interesting thought. And so I, I, I said to the guys, hey, guys, I heard that guy say God bless. And I, I heard you say God bless. That's really nice. That's, that's awesome. Um, do you believe in God? And they said, uh, yeah. I said, that's really, really good. You know, I was sitting there listening to the music and I was, had a lot in my head and heart and I was just trying to figure out, can you help me understand how to reconcile this idea of a holy and perfectly good God and how you as people of faith can take delight in music and things such as that? And uh, they were all really silent. I wasn't trying to trap them because I just want to say above and beyond that, you got to get me here. I am not better than these men. I was just really interested to know how this idea logically worked in their heads and hearts. And so the sauna was quiet. Nobody was able to justify it. The best idea that I got um, from one of the guys was, though, well, you know that we're all works in progress. We're all learning at our own pace. God knows that, and I don't disagree with that idea. But the idea that these men were embracing in the sauna was that God is good and gracious, and because he is gracious, they then could live however they please. And I said, oh, this is really interesting. Um, can I read to you a verse from the Bible that is on my mind? And they said, sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterous people, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so after I read this passage, I tried to share with them the gospel of why Christ had to die and why it's good news that he did. I'm not sure if it got through, but here's why I tell you this story this morning as we begin. Because when it comes to God's love, forgiveness, and free acceptance, we, you, me, will hardly ever hear someone opposed to that. But when it comes to practical life and holy living, that's where people begin to pump the brakes. You see, many people say that they are Christians. But the Bible says, if you have faith, show me your life and works. In other words, how can someone say that they are Christian and not live like it? Is obedience nothing but legalism? Or is it something else? Can it be something else? You know, as well as I do, that we're all imperfect people. We all sin and stumble along the way. So when that happens, how should we think about ourselves in this? And lastly, is there any hope for the faithful man or woman who with their imperfect life honestly seeks after Christ to live uprightly before God? These are some of the questions I'd like to dive into through our time together this morning. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 18 through 31 this morning 
Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, chapter 4, 1831 through 31. And if you're following along, following the sermon this morning, I've titled the sermon a question. And the question is that, how should we think about obedience in the life of faith? Three things I'd like to show you as we explore our text together this morning are this. Number one, I'd like for us to understand or know our power. Number two, I would love for us to understand or know our disobedience. And number three, I'd like for us all to know how to receive God's grace. Knowing our power, understanding our disobedience, and receiving God's grace. We're going to begin our time by reading the text up front again. Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zephorah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak. And all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their, their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Super thankful for this. Right now we're moving to point number one, knowing our power. Well, um, here our text begins with an opening to a new scene. For the past few weeks now, we have journeyed together through the beginning of this book of Exodus, chapters 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 last week, which we have seen um, to describe Moses' time with God up on Mount Sinai. Moses has been with the Lord, and there the Lord has been uh, uh, speaking to him from the burning bush. And um, a couple weeks ago, we saw how God gave to Moses this monumental task. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, God said to Moses, Hey Moses, I want you to go into Egypt, proclaim my name to the people and also to Pharaoh, and I'm going to support you in your going by performing miracles and wonders on your behalf so that my people would believe and listen. This week, as we approach this text, we find Moses 
finally going after the commission, heading on his way. Um, After being on the mountain, Moses returns back to his father-in-law's house, Jethro, and as any good son-in-law would do to respect his wife's uh, dad, he asked for permission to take his daughter to a, a faraway place and return to Egypt. And Jethro, as a great father-in-law, hint, hint, says, go. The law of differentiation, praise God for that. <laughs> Verses 18 through 20 are um, pretty much a high-level summary of Moses taking his wife and his sons with him. And that's pretty much the intention. But if you look there, after it talks about this, the author here adds one small detail to the summary to Moses' departure, which should grab our attention. At the end of verse 20, it says this. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. I mentioned to you this last week. Uh, at the end of the sermon, historically speaking, how staffs during this time were symbols of divine authority. In other words, as Moses is leaving Midian and endeavoring upon this journey to Egypt, he takes with him in his hand the very authority of God. And further, if you look in verse 21, as Moses went on his way, God then goes on to say this to him. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. See how this text is worded there? I italicized those words, your power. Whose power is it? It's Moses's. Yes, indeed, the power is coming from God, but now God is literally taking his power and giving it to his servant Moses for this great task and commission to send him off into this foreign land, into this foreign country, and speak to a nation and people and call them to listen and thus obey. Moses here on this mission has personally been enabled, empowered, and equipped for the task that God has given him. And so the point that I would like to make here and remind us of all, it's a gospel point, and that point is this. God empowers his people for the mission that he calls them to. His mission indeed requires obedience. But as we are sent out, we are not sent out without help or aid or ability to perform the task in the same way that Moses is sent to the nation of Egypt to bear the name of the Lord. So you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, have been given a much greater task and sent to the nations to proclaim the name of Christ so a people would turn, a nation and, and or nations would submit, and thus the whole world mission would be accomplished and fulfilled in believing and worshiping our God. Global mission is here for us in light of the new covenant. And when we consider this mission that God seeks before us, you know as well as I do that it's intimidating to speak and preach the good news to non-Christians. I was in the sauna and when I was, before I was speaking, my heart was beating. I had a lump in my throat. Me being a pastor doesn't make this easier. I get nervous. I thought to myself, it would just be easier if I could just go home and say nothing to these people. 
but they need to hear the gospel. Because if they don't hear the gospel, who's going to hear it? Who's going to tell them it? My brothers and sisters, we are not sent on this great mission to reach the nations without authority and the power of God. This mission that we have called to, you got to hear this, it requires obedience. It actually requires you and me to go. Go therefore, Jesus said in Matthew 12. Jesus looked at his disciples at the end of his ministry and commissioned the disciples to go. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I will be with you until the end of the ages. And you want to know what he said before that? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. So in this picture of Matthew chapter 28, we have the authority of Christ himself being given to the disciples in order for them to be effective and able to do the mission. And then in Acts chapter 2, when after they were waiting for the, the power, the power of the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. You and I need to know that we indeed are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. God's plan to reach your neighbors is actually you. God's plan to reach your coworkers is actually you. God's plan to reach your children and your extended family, it's actually you. And by and through the power of the Spirit of God in you, salvation can come to people and to households and to places. In other words, you have all you need for this mission. You lack nothing. You got to hear me. The fields are ripe for harvest. The workers are few. Does that not break your heart? You hear what I just said? I said the fields are ripe for harvest, but the workers are few. Who will go? I'll tell you who'll go. The person who believes in the promise and power of this gospel. How can this not break your heart to think that if you don't reach your neighbors, they might not be reached? If you don't reach your coworkers, they just might not hear the gospel. If you don't reach your family, they might not get the gospel. I don't know about you, I'm not trying to take that chance. I don't know about you, but when you've been filled with the love of God and you become a regenerate Christian, born again by the Spirit of God, living, you can't help but go and reach the lost. Who is going to go? Who is going to go and reach the lost? This is how serious this is. 
Israel's main failure in the Old Testament is that they were a holy huddle and did not live holy lives and or did not participate on holy mission. God calls Gentiles and fills them by grace with the Holy Spirit and then they come alive and then they go. And when it comes to obedience, I just want to say the same thing applies. Like in Relation to obedience in the life of a Christian, because of the gospel, you and I actually could obey. We are not powerless, we are not without help and or lack of support, but we have been given the authority of God, the power of God. So when you consider your sin and your temptation and this mission and the category of holy living, you can say through the power of Christ, I choose to obey. You can obey. Lord Maskey last week, if you weren't here for the moment of grace, I'm so thankful for the gospel she presented to us. She talked about how her and her husband were out to eat. And after the check came in, how they were considering how to wrap up the extra piece of food and how they got into a fight over a piece of tinfoil. That's just so relatable, man. Okay, then after that, to make things even more relatable, they talked about Monopoly and how the game of Monopoly after actually just fueled the flame of um, passive aggressiveness. How relatable, but, but can I just talk to you about when you are in a, in a fight with your spouse and silence is hard and heavy and passive aggressivity is ruling your home? Did you know that as Satan comes to you and tells you to go inward and to hide and to stop talking, indeed lies to you and says that you can't talk, do you know that the power of God reigns the rules in you, not only in that you can choose to talk, but you could slay your sin, pursue healing and forgiveness and grace for the sake of your marriage and the glory of Christ. Not without help or support. By and through the spirit of Christ, you have the power to obey. By and through the spirit of Christ, you have the power to slay your sin. By and through the spirit of Christ, you can run from temptation. You can get up off of the spiritually lazy couch and choose spiritual disciplines. When you feel the click, the temptation to click on the internet, on that thing that you know you shouldn't watch, you don't have to click it because Christ lives in you and you have the power not to click it. You can love your enemies. You can heal your marriages. You can bless your neighborhood. You have been given the power of God to obey. John Piper is a man I deeply revere and respect. In this article, he wrote an article about obedience. In it, he said five things. Here's five things that obedience does. Number one, obedience says, Lord, you are praiseworthy and reliable. Number two, obedience guarantees the spread of God's glory. Number three, obedience reveals the fact that God's grace is a glorious power. Number four, it reveals that God's commands are not too hard or burdensome. And lastly, obedience is the true sign and marker of faith. I was wondering if you could relate to the psalmist in chapter 119. If this is you, let the spirit of Christ rise in you for more obedience. Oh, how I love your law. 
It's my meditation all day. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. My testimonies are my, your testimonies are my meditation. I hold my feet back from every evil way in order to keep your word. I don't turn aside from your rules because you taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. This is what we get through this, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit of Christ living in us, which is power to obey, authority to go, and pleasure when we do it. You need the Holy Spirit to obey because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, obedience is nothing going to be but bondage and chains for you. But if you've been born again to the Spirit of God, obedience will produce in you great joy. Amen? That was point number one, knowing our power. I'd like now to move to point number two and show you the second point, which is how we can understand our disobedience. Excuse me. Well, uh, the next interesting thing in this next section of text is that uh, as we see Moses journeying towards Egypt in an act of obedience, uh, as we're reading, we then encounter this really hard and, and honestly quite abrupt sentence in verse 24, which says this. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So in other words, as Moses was outwardly obeying God and doing the right thing, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he encounters God's wrath. And if this isn't bizarre enough of a picture or scene, we then have Moses' wife, Zephora here, who uh, comes to him, um, and after circumcising their son, takes this, <laughs> this is kind of weird even to say, takes the skin of their son's penis, uh, hits his feet with it, and then all of a sudden, uh, things go back to normal. Here's my confession. This might be the weirdest story that I've ever preached. <laughs> it's bizarre, but I want to tell you how it's actually beautiful. Here's what's going on. In order for us to understand or interpret this section of story um, well or appropriately, we must remember that this book of Exodus is not a standalone book, but rather a continuation of the story that began in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 17, what happened was that God made a promise to Abraham that all of his children and the generations thereafter him would be set apart as his very own possession, aka as God's people, and God in his grace would go on to bless them and make them a great nation. And um, the visible sign and physical marker of this promise was circumcision. Over and over again in our story throughout the past three weeks, we have seen ever since Moses encountered God on Sinai, God saying to Moses, Moses, you need to know that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you go to Egypt, make sure you tell those people when you get there that I, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. Moses, by and through God's initiative on the mountain, was saved and blessed by God with this promise. He and his family were engrafted into this people. Thus, circumcision, the sign and seal and marker of this covenant promise belonging to these people was mandatory. Not only for Moses, but also his sons. And here from this text, we can include, uh, conclude from deduction that Moses didn't do it. This is what God's promise has been ever since the beginning of him calling a people to himself. It has only ever been about God saving a people 
and that people holding salvation and then passing it on to their children so that it would spread and move on to the generations and their lives would reach the nations to the glory of God. God, when he saves individuals, he doesn't save individuals and lead them as such. He saves individuals into a people. And the idea from this text that we see in light of God's motives and actions and Moses here is how children and family are a vital part of this picture. Moses had the responsibility as a father and husband to believe in God and to make his main life mission this, to pass down this faith and marker to his children. This is how serious God is about husbands and fathers bearing the name of Christ in the midst of their families. This is how serious God is for husbands and fathers to, to be the spiritual leaders of their household. When husbands and fathers consider this main mission and look at it as not such a big deal or not priority, you then get this. The threat of judgment, even death. God here, in effect, was saying to Moses, Moses, you may not go on in my service until you are right with me. Forget about Egypt, man. What I care about most is obedience in the secret place. Your personal life and your personal faithfulness to me and your role as to be the spiritual leader in your family. Parents, did you know that outward obedience means nothing before God if your inward personal obedience and relationship with God is not right or holy. Your children can sniff that a mile away. Moses here, as a husband and father, was doing the outward religious thing, the deed, but inwardly his life and actions or lack thereof revealed that he had no need for God and his grace commitments. One commentator named J.A. Motyer said this, There's nothing, this is nothing short of enacted atheism. This is why disobedience is such a serious matter because in it, it, it proves that a person does not need the assurance of personal transformation, family prosperity, or spiritual security. Only by returning to the way of obedience could Moses continue to walk in the way of service to the Lord. And so Sephora here in this picture, this godly wife, this godly woman takes, look what she's doing. She's taking the responsibility of her husband and performing the role and duty on his behalf. <laughs> what a woman. She, the wife, steps up as a spiritual leader and circumcises their son. And what I want for us to notice is that this divine assault or judgment from God here on this family was really an act of grace because it is the very thing that sobered them to the spiritual condition and reality of that inward secret place. This is what gets the family's attention. The fact that willful, unrepentant disobedience surely, surely provokes God's anger and wrath. So I want to talk to the husbands for a second. I know 
I'll just wait. Um, are you the spiritual leaders of your household? Do you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Are you leading your wife to Christ out of your own personal inward holy devotion? Or are you playing the outward Christian game, living in secret sin or with a heart that is inwardly far and cold from God? Hey, if this is you, I just want to say you're in a really dangerous place. You're in a really dangerous place. Wives, you can be Zephora for your family and husbands. If your husband doesn't spiritually lead, you can 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, you're holy. And so if you're a believer and you have an unbelieving spouse, your call by and through the Spirit of Christ is to lead your family, male or female. God will use you. And if you're, a, if you're an unbeliever and you have a spouse that uh, believes, I just want to let you know that um, the text I just read doesn't mean that you're saved. It just proves the point that God is being absolutely gracious to you. He's committed to you and he hasn't let you go to your own ways. His grace is unavoidable because he's put a person who's enamored by grace in your life. And so he's just chasing you down and he's never going to let you go until the day you die or no longer with that person. So if you're not in faith and your husband or wife are in faith, God is trying to get your attention. To the faithful husband and or wife and even child, I say, praise God for you. Don't stop fearing or obeying the Lord. The Lord will use your faithfulness. He used it for us. In that same article that I read for you from John Piper, he went on to talk about what disobedience reveals before God. Five reasons why God hates it. And this is what he said. Number one, God hates disobedience because it shows misplaced fear. Number two, because it shows misplaced pleasure. Number three, because it shows misplaced praise. Four, because it's, it's a sin of divination, which is a pursuit and or knowledge of the future without God. And five, because it's idolatrous. In other words, what I want you to know is that disobedience is a direct attack on God's glory. This is not only um, a personal warning to unfaithful spouses, but this is a personal warning to everyone here, including myself, to remind us of how serious God actually takes sin. Secret sin. Unrepentant, habitual disobedience of God. Are you living in any way disobedient to God? Did you know that the scriptures make no promises, in fact, only give warning to the one who says they believe in the Bible and Christ but are still living in light of those confessions unfaithfully. I'm not talking about random or momentary failure. I'm talking about habitual sin. A continuous hard heart and rebellion against God. The coldness of affection for him or love for him. Unrepentant, secret sin in the heart. Is there anything that's burdening your conscience? 
Are you in any way able to hear the voice of God knocking on your heart saying, trying to get your attention. God is being gracious to you this morning and is calling out through his word. He wants to forgive you. He wants to show you mercy. He wants to lavish his love on you. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and repent. And the Lord would be eager to wash away all of your sin and let you start on a clean slate. Without any shame, guilt, or condemnation, Christ could be yours freely. After I read that verse in the sauna to those guys of that long list of sin, listen to the gospel conclusion of the passage. Paul goes on to say, and as such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This morning I'm saying, you could be washed and forgiven and sanctified by the Spirit of God which froze freely by grace alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. All you got to do is come. Amen? That's point number two. I'd like to finish now on our last point and show you how this all adds up to how we can receive God's grace. As uh, we finish here, one of the most powerful things that I didn't yet mention about Zephora's, uh, Zephora's weird actions is uh, how she touches her husband with that uh, circumcision. And the text says in verse 26, this super simple, but in a really powerful way, these words. So he, being God, let him, Moses, alone. In other words, after Zavorah touched Moses with the blood of circumcision, which symbolized God's faithfulness and his promise to save his people, he indeed, the Lord, then relented from his anger, showed Moses mercy, and reinstituted him on the holy mission to Egypt. As soon as Moses was touched by the blood of the covenant, God spared his life, his wife saw it, she rejoiced, and then they went on their mission to Egypt and were shown favor. In the final portion of the text, it concludes with Moses entering into Egypt with his brother, Aaron, and the text, instead of bogging us down with all these details, the author writes with one big attention to get our attention on the final product of this story with this sinful man and this gracious God. In the last two verses, it says, even after all, all of this, Moses was pardoned and still shown the grace of God to reach Egypt, be successful on mission, proclaim the name of God, and God did just as he promised. He performed signs, miracles, and wonders after Moses talks about the Lord, and the text says that the people believed, they bowed their heads, and they worshiped. Oh man, so that's an easy parallel to the new covenant. On Friday, I spent my, my day with my family. It's my day off. It's my Sabbath. And um, I don't know why I chose to do this on Friday, but we ordered um, a big project, a big box, totally pieces from Wayfair, a home entertainment center, and I decided to do that on my day off. Bad choice. <laughs> Anyways, um, 
It took me about five hours, probably eight hours a day with interruption. And if I'm just honest with you, completely honest, so you know that I'm not the Christ, I want to let you know that I am not the most patient man when it comes to projects. I know it's kind of funny because many of us can relate, but I actually am a really wretched sinner. I was angry with my family. I was angry with my children. I had a horrible temper with my wife and also my, and my children. And they did not experience patience or the fruit of the Holy Spirit in me. And the whole day went on and it burdened my heart. It broke my heart indeed. And then at nighttime when Lizzie and I sit down to watch Netflix, we sat down and we paused the, the show that we were watching. And I asked Lizzie for forgiveness and I repented and I asked her to forgive my lack of patience because I'm a sinful man who needs a savior. She gave that to me. And then my two boys were upstairs sleeping in their bunk beds and I thought, I gotta go talk to them. I hope they're not sleeping yet. I got there, Huddy was sleeping. I sat in his bed. I put my hand on his head and I prayed and I asked God to forgive me. I didn't wanna wake him up. But JJ was up, my oldest one. He was on a top bunk and he said, hey dad, what are you doing here? And I said, buddy, I just wanna say goodnight. And uh, he said, is that all? And I said, no, son. (laughs) I said, no, son, I want to ask for forgiveness for my anger today. I sinned against you and against the Lord. It has broken my heart, and I really need your mercy. And you know what he said to me? He said, Dad, everyone sins sometimes, but there's one person who didn't. And then he went on to say, well, he's actually three persons, but I'll forgive you, Dad. But my son, he reminded me of the gospel and he gave to me Christ and he got me off the performance treadmill and turned my eyes on the perfect savior. We are all indeed here as saints, sinners who need the grace of Christ to save us. And from this text, this is who we get far greater than Zephora coming to Moses with the blood of their son, the second person of the Trinity condescends, steps into earth and touches us with his very own righteous blood. And it isn't just one ounce of blood that cleanses us, but in all of his eternal grace, he bids us to come and stand before his unending flood where he takes all of his blood and pours it over our heads, where we can be forgiven, cleansed, and washed clean without any guilt or shame or condemnation. There's no room for that. Jesus' blood washes away sin, and he cleanses white as snow. And the great scandal of this gospel is is found exactly in how Christ glorifies himself. How does he do it? He takes fallen, wretched people like you and me who have received grace. And then he says, as having received this great grace, I want you to go and reach the nations and boast of my power and my strength and my perfection to save. We get the blood of Christ, the much greater blood of the new covenant, which flows from Emmanuel's veins. We're going to sing it in a second. An old Presbyterian preacher named uh, Thomas uh, Chalmers from the 1800s preached a wonderful sermon on this, but basically his sermon in summary was, here's how you'll know when true grace and the gospel is preached. When people obey. Obedience is the only response, appropriate response to grace. I want to close here, but I want to ask a question.
Uh, maybe some of you here have never been born again by the Holy Spirit of God and only have heard of Christianity spoken of. And the only way that you only interacted with the, with the faith is through, the faith is through uh, rules and religion. Jesus wants to set you free of that. If you've been struggling in sin, trying to get yourself out of it for years and not able to do it so you could be right before God, Christ came to free you from that. Jesus came to break the powers of sin and death so that freely we could live unto righteousness, being fully assured of God's grace to us through his son. And so I invite you, I invite us all this morning to humble our hearts and ask God to give us obedience and even more that he would give us more confidence in the grace of Christ for a holy life and holy mission. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We don't just get one ounce of your blood, though that be eternally enough, but we get to stand before an eternal fountain and your sacrifice on our behalf is our hope and confidence in making us clean. Please, Lord, change people's hearts in here. Please, Lord, sanctify Christians. Please, Lord, send us out on mission with hope and power in your authority and gospel. We love you, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.